Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Genevieve Lester, the DeSario Chair of Strategic Intelligence at the U.S. Army War College and your host today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today, we welcome A Better Peace's own Dr. Ron Granieri and his colleague, Dr. Martin Brown, to discuss their fascinating new book, The Bondian Cold War, The Transnational Legacy of a Cultural Icon. Their third editor, Dr. Muriel Blave, could not join us today. Maybe she can join us next time. Welcome to A Better Peace. I can't wait to get started. Thanks, Jen. It's great to be here. It's great to be on this side of the table. Thanks for inviting me. So I read the whole book agog and thought it was fantastic. So can you start by just talking about the genesis of the project? What drove your approach to such an iconic symbol as James Bond? Martin, I'm going I'm, I'm to I'm say one thing and I'm going to let Martin go. And that is when Martin and I first met at a conference in Paris, of all places, back in 2008, we were talking during one of the breaks and he told me that he had taught a class um, when he was teaching at, at Richmond, that he taught a class on James Bond in the Cold War. And I thought that was about the coolest thing imaginable. And so we, since then, we talked about this a lot until we finally uh, got our act together to do a conference and this panel. But I'm going to let uh, Martin talk about the, the details of that because he's the spiritus rector there. Well, yes. I mean, it was some years ago and it must have been around the, f- the first time I met Ron uh, in Paris. I think it's important to remember that academics are a bit like intelligence operatives. We travel around the world, we, we acquire information, we report this back, and we battle our, uh, you know, our enemies, usually other academics or reviewer too. <laughs> um, and uh, Ron and I met in Paris. We'll always have Paris. Ron. We always will. And you know, we were meeting there, and I think I must have just started teaching. It must have been like the first year or so, because I teach at a small liberal arts style university in london called richmond um and i was given the opportunity a few years ago they said uh, we need a first year seminar which to your american listeners i think will be familiar to you know the idea of a first year program and i always remember as an undergraduate and then as a phd student doing a lot of british social history so i you know for many years when i was finishing my phd i taught a course family and community in industrial england 1750 to 1900 that lasted a year um, and was very well put together, but I imagine very boring. So when I had the opportunity to, to create a first year course, I thought, well, blimey, let's do James Bond. And uh, created this course that ran for four or five years. It still occasionally runs. I think I'm teaching it next summer. And sort of discovered, I thought I was doing something really quite original. There are other people doing this. You know, other, other versions are available out there. Um, to try and, you know, and then discovered this world of Bondology of other people have written about Bond and there are articles and books and um, experts and academics and, of course, fans. And, 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 you know, very often it's the fans and the super fans, you know, far more than us academics. I think we should say it at, at the outset. There's also another story that uh, Muriel and I were once having martinis at Duke's, which was one of Ian Fleming's hangouts here in London. 
and we had the idea of doing a conference. And when eventually I got to um, have a fellowship at the University of Tallinn in 2018, 2019, um, they were asking me, you know, there's a there's some money if you you know could apply for some money for a conference. What would you like to do? And my day job, I'm a diplomatic historian. Uh, and my day job is looking at diplomatic networks and contacts during the Helsinki negotiations leading to the Helsinki Final Act in 1975. So I naively thought, well, they might be interested in that, you know, potential detente with Russia. Maybe this is an interesting topic. No interest at all. Uh, I mentioned James Bond and then everyone's eyes light up. Uh, and so <laughs> with, with the help of my colleagues at Tallinn, um, Crystal Toom, I should mention, who, who was you know vital in getting the conference up and running, and also Marek Tam. If you're ever interested in reading anything about Estonia, read Marek's work; it's available online. Um, helped us put together this wonderful conference of people from all around the globe. One or two online. This is pre-COVID, but we had one or two online. And um, this book is the result of that conference. So there's multiplicity of different meeting wrong martinis with Muriel uh, and a conference in Tallinn. Um, and hopefully the, the end result is is worth all that. Yeah. And it's funny because the conference itself took place in June of, of 2019. And it was literally just uh, when I when I returned from Tallinn is when I started my job at the Army War College. So this was this was one of my last uh uh, it was it was right there at that interesting stage. So it's that's why it's 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 great that things come full circle that we're talking about it now on the War College podcast. And and Ron had quite a journey, didn't you, getting there and back? And it was literally sort of flying in two days and then out again. That's pretty much yeah. Um, I had to, yeah, I came in and left. And I remember uh, a flight was supposed to be to Warsaw from Warsaw to Tallinn, and then that the Warsaw flight was canceled, so it was Warsaw to Riga to Tallinn. Um, so I, I I won't say I saw a lot of the Baltics because. Um, I only saw things out the windows of various airplanes and uh, airport lounges, which I guess is very James Bondian too, in its own way. We don't talk about Bond and dealing with his travel arrangements, right? We don't talk about him coming back. I make a comment in, in my essay, right, that Bond is a civil servant. And so when he comes back at the end of his trip, he probably has to fill out an after action report and turn in all his receipts. Um, I can only imagine what that must be like for him. That voucher must be immense. Immense. Yes. Um, so you, I, I thought this book was brilliant, um, and I had great fun reading it. And I, I, what I really thought was fascinating is how you intertwine a lot of different themes. And so I just want to start out with this, this discussion that, that, that is at the outset of the book on bond as product. Can you unpack that for us? I think Martin, that was your work. Um, well, product has sort of two meanings. Of course, there's a meaning of intelligence product. So intelligence professionals, agents, officers are producing product for the consumer. But what I was interested in in my chapter, and, and hopefully other people are interested in, and one of the core questions for me of the James Bondian Cold War, it might be different in other eras, but in that, in that war, Cold War era, is the question of why the Cold War seems slightly distant. Why it seems quite fuzzy, not not you know that he's not necessarily always fighting communists and Soviets, even in the books. And I thought the most interesting way to approach that was then looking at James Bond as a product, as a product of literature to be sold and to be licensed, and then a product of the films. I mean, I'm sure we're all quite aware of the James Bond merchandising, 
and the you know the absolute juggernaut that is now the James Bond sort of film PR process. You know, at least a year before any film emerges, you've got this massive PR started, which will start again soon. Um, I don't want to give anything away, but anyone who saw the last James Bond film will know that they're looking for a new actor. So we will have months and months of this. And what I was trying to argue is that if you look at James Bond as product in the Cold War, then you start to recognize that James Bond is less part of the culture kampf of the Cold War and part of, of Cold War culture. And I think that division between, you know, fighting the Cold War with culture, cultural products, whatever those might be, it, it, it's, I think it's fascinating how often people suggest or argue that James Bond is, is part of the West Cold War. Rather, what I'm trying to argue is actually it's, it's an outcome of, uh, of the culture of the Cold War. And although the Cold War is present, certainly for Ian Fleming um, and also for Cubby Broccoli and the, and the film producers, there's another aspect there for them, and that's they want to sell James Bond and sell James Bond as widely as possible. And they take the decision relatively early on that, you know, if we're going to sell this, I hesitate to say globally, although they do have discussions about selling Bond behind the Iron Curtain, believe it or not, um, is that you want to tone down the politics, that it doesn't want to be absolutely, I mean, I suppose the equivalent would be something like the Rambo films of the 1980s, where the politics were very front and centre. Um, or indeed, if you think about the new Top Gun movie, um, you know, who's the enemy there? It, it's, it's not quite clear. And, and we're also aware that many franchises and Hollywood films these days are very concerned about being able to sell their product in China. So that means certain topics, certain issues may be skirted over or might not be absolutely precise. So the idea of Bond as product, which is in no way to denigrate it, um, you know, no way to say that it's somehow lesser, but also to think about that if we think about James Bond in the Cold War, one of the ways of thinking about it, there's plenty others, is, is the selling of Bond, the promotion of Bond, how you get the product out. Right. And, and you know, when we were talking the other day, there is a connection between James Bond and Michael Jordan. Right. When Michael Jordan was asked why he didn't take more firm political stance, he said, well, Republicans buy sneakers, too. Um, that uh, and and so the idea that certainly by the time we get into the seventies and into the into the eighties, the uh, the Bond films want to be able to sell, irrespective of their politics. Let's say, even though the Bond films do have their politics, but the idea that that Bond faces increasingly, you know, when he faces those uh, random me megalomaniacal uh, multimillionaires rather than uh, Soviet agents, um, that that's that's a sign that it's, we're not really talking about the Cold War here. Um, even though the, all of the, 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 the atmosphere is a cold war atmosphere, the, the cold war, which created this craze for studying espionage and talking about spying, but, you know, we're making sure that the, the enemy is left vague enough that everybody can feel like they're on the side of the good guys when they watch the movie or read the book. So that leads us into the next question I'd like to, to throw out there, which is bond and fact and fiction. So how is the fact, the actuality of espionage intertwined with the fiction that is represented by Bond? You know, we have we have one in the among the the elements in the in the book that are fun is we have Jill Bennett's chapter on Bond in the archives, where somebody who works with uh, the espionage history talks about, you know, how we could understand Bond. And we also have this interview with um, with uh, Mossad agents 
who uh, was a Mossad agent who consulted on a different movie, um, but also talked about the role of James Bond in the movies. And so it is an interesting question, right? That, that James Bond's not a spy. This is the, uh, that the you know, agencies, you know, they, they will rush to tell you this, right? He's not a spy. So what is he? Um, there is a connection to reality since we can think of Bond as a, he is a special operator, Right, that he is, you know, in case in, often he's engaged in what we consider to be paramilitary activities, even um, although not, not the drinking cocktails and the wearing uh, tuxedos part. But let's say when at the beginning of Goldfinger, James Bond is sent to blow up um, the the factory making heroin flavored bananas. Um, right, that is a uh, that is a special operation. Right, um, you know, he's a one man he's one man SEAL Team Six. Now, but of course, he's not. You know, the, the connection to reality is, of course, uh, uh, tenuous. And one of the things that um, that I know I can toss over to Martin to talk about, too, is that the the idea that spy agencies struggle with the James Bond image, right? On the one hand, right? Hey, if, if, if you thinking about James Bond makes you want to sign up and be a good case officer for the CIA, that's great. But of course, as soon as you sign up for the job, the CIA is going to tell you there are no James Bonds in this business. Um, and so this, the, there's this sort of approach avoidance with the image of Bond um, and the end of the spy. Right? What do you think about that, Martin? Absolutely. I, I was just reading over this weekend uh, Nicholas Shakespeare's new biography of Ian Fleming. Just came out in, in the UK a couple of days ago. I think I'm about halfway through, which I'm finding fascinating and is a sort of an update to Andrew Lysett's uh, biography of Ian Fleming from about 10, 15 years ago. Of course, where one draws the line between the reality and the fiction is is fascinating. And and that's why we have three chapters on this. Um, Jill, of course, um, is very important as she's the former foreign office historian uh, and one of the few people to have ever seen uh, British secret intelligence service archives and documents uh, and then to write about them because they've never been released. Um, But of course, Bond is not realistic. Bond is not real. I mean, that's the first thing. It's very obvious if you read any of the novels or watch any of the films, this is not realism. Um, But the interesting things, and I think this runs through a lot of espionage fiction, is the fact, of course, that his author, Ian Fleming, who 70, 71 years ago sat down at GoldenEye's villa in Jamaica and started knocking out, you know, the first Casino Royale novel, the first Bond novel, had himself this intelligence career. And it's interesting, I'm just reading that Shakespeare's writing about this, and also had an influence with the foundation of the OSS and the CIA in the United States. So now, I think there is some discussion about exactly what Fleming did when he was in naval intelligence during the Second World War. But he clearly was involved at a very high level. Um, he clearly, you know, also, I mean, there's several books on this now, created this commando squad in 1941, 1942, that was designed to, to, to go into occupied Europe and, and acquire information and, and documentation from the Nazis, which then operated very successfully in 44, 45. So we know this is, you know, happened and occurred. So in a way, we can see Bond as this sort of, you know, special operations operative coming from a military background and then going into, and spying is, of course, Jen, you'll correct me here, a, a, a quite a tricky word. I think most intelligence, you know, people who study intelligence will get very hot under the collar if you start calling him a spy or a super spy. He's not a spy. Um, we all have these terms that annoy. Um, 
But at the same time, I think there is a military connection. Certainly in, in some of the continuation novels, you know, he, he sort of joins organizations that are more like the, the British Special Operations Executive of the Second World War. Um, and there is, I wouldn't want to go too far with this, but you can sort of see him maybe getting in a helicopter and, and going to, um, you know, Afghanistan late 2001 or, you know, this sort of activity. Or certainly I was reading recently a fascinating book about the, the Green Berets in West Berlin during the Cold War. I think it was called something like Detachment A. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And... These guys, as I understand it, if a, a Third World War ever started in the Cold War, were supposed to somehow sneak out of West Berlin and, and sort of start uprisings in East Germany. And there's, there's, they practice parachuting with atomic bombs strapped to them in the 1950s. Now, this stuff is, is very Bondian. So, you know, there's overlap here. But at the same time, at the end of the day, it is escapism. And so... We don't expect Bond to be credible, but at the same time, it's, it, it is quite remarkable how much time and effort has been spent by multiple authors in multiple languages over the last seven decades trying to figure out how realistic or otherwise Bond actually is. And there's this there's this weird back and forth. There's this weird dialogue. Like, is Bond is you know, was Fleming drawing on any of his experiences when he described at least sort of the the surroundings of Bond's experience. <clears throat> but then there's also in the Bond novels that because they were popular with some people in the intelligence business, that there's the famous story that, that Alan Dulles, um, when he read about the possibility in uh, in Goldfinger, I guess it was, to talk about you know um, having a tracking device that you could put on a vehicle that you could follow it, is he 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 writes this in the Craft of Intelligence that that he um, he tasked the CIA's technical services in the late 1950s with the challenge of let's see if we can do this, and of course this was before the days of GPS. Right now it's quite obvious that you could do exactly that. But in the 1950s, that, that it was one of those things that Dulles, according to himself, right? He read it. He heard Fleming talk about it. He thought it was interesting. He tried to see if the CIA could do it. Um, so in that sense, right, even at the same time as, as the agencies are, are emphasizing that their reality, I mean, heck, we all know the CIA tried to develop electronic cats who could carry microphone listening devices so they could walk up to Soviet agents sitting on park benches. Um, and they had a problem, of course, is that the electronic cats would freeze or explode or do various things and just kind of you know blow their cover. I think about this every time I watch your cat walk across the screen, Jen, while we're recording this. But um, but you know that there's you know that there are as many odd things in the real life of intelligence as there are sort of vaguely realistic things in James Bond, which which says something about the emergence of this this open pipeline. Sort of the you know James Bond reflects you know James Bond is a product of the culture of the Cold War, but then influences the Cold War as people decide either and and other cultural products, other movies, other stories will either try to copy James Bond, they'll try to top James Bond, they'll consciously show that they're not James Bond. Right? Think about um, uh, I think about a movie like Charlie Wilson's War, um, and you think about. Um, uh, uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman and Charlie Wilson's War, who is definitely not James Bond, but we're, we focus in on him to see what it's like to work in the CIA. Um, and it's it's all uh, bureaucratic infighting and uh, and cursing your uh, superiors. But this this there's there's one little piece in the most recent James Bond film that I really love, and that is that for all the years that we've heard James Bond introduce himself by saying Bond, James Bond, 
In No Time to Die, when he comes back to headquarters for the first time in years, he walks up to the security uh, guard and they say, okay, name. And he says, Bond. And he expects them to know who he is. And when they don't, he says sort of frustratedly, James Bond. Right. So the same, it's the same entrance, it's the same introduction, but it's very different when it, when it collides with the reality of, of bureaucracy. And of course he has to get a little badge to wear into, which you never see him wearing going into CM. These are fascinating points. And I think with um, a piece of this, it's really interesting that you just brought up, Ron, is, is how the, um, he is an exemplar, how he it provides or any of these figures um, provide an aperture into this secret world. And I think we see that with James Bond in many different ways. I mean, there's the crossover between the crazy antics and the physical feats and then having to wear a badge, having to be part of a bureaucracy, part of the establishment. So I just would like you to address Bond and the public perception of intelligence how those are intertwined and how Bond and other figures like him, but really specifically looking at Bond, could be used as a device by the intelligence agencies to, to basically convey a certain message. There was a wonderful book some years ago by Michael Billig about banal nationalism um, and this idea of banal bond that, you know, it's a, quite remarkable, you know, I've got Google alerts that come up when James Bond is ever mentioned. I, I see I've just got one now, uh, Max Hastings writing about the fact that uh, Bond was the first agent of globalization. I haven't read it yet. Um, but it, it's remarkable how often you see references to Bond. It's almost impossible to read any newspaper article these days um, without uh, about intelligence, about an espionage, without somewhere in it a reference to James Bond. Usually that reference is, it's not like James Bond, it's not James Bond. Or even interviews with head of ex, you know, external intelligence agencies. Somewhere in that interview, they will, James Bond will be dropped in. So whenever the public think about intelligence, Bond is in there somewhere. And now quite how you unpick that sort of weave how you unpick that relationship is quite difficult intelligence agencies head of external intelligence agencies will always deny it's not like bond or memoirs it's not like bond um i was i was mentioning the jawbreaker mission to afghanistan in 2001 and i forget the name of the author but even he at the beginning of that says you know well i'm a paramilitary for the cia but i'm not like james bond and then describes the sports car that he does drive <laughs> um <laughs> you, know, you, you can't get away from it right so I think for many people at the same time that they, they realize it's not, but there's bond and there's bond and there's anti-bond. So I think within the public consciousness, although there's bond, um, and it's, this has been spoofed, I mean, almost as long as, as bond has been around. Um, Cyril Connolly was, was spoofing bond back in, what, 1958, 59, so long before even the first Casino, first casino Royale film at the cinema. So it's, you know, there's spoof. So I, I think Bond's always in the public con conception of what it's like. But quite how you unpick that's quite tricky, I think. And I'm not sure I have a definitive answer. Well, and, and when you think about the way we talk about going, this goes back to Bond as cultural product, right? He becomes this massive export product for the UK. Um, the idea that at the 2012 Olympics, they the, the, the producers decide to devote a, a great amount of, you know, they bring together the two most important representatives of the UK in 2012, right? And they were Elizabeth II and Daniel Craig as James Bond. Um, that, that, you know, when you think about that, right? I mean, I, I, I can't imagine, you know, what other, you know, film character 
um, you know, the British would say, you know, this is us, right? They didn't, they didn't have, they didn't have the queen meet Mr. Bean, right? They had the queen meet James Bond. Um, and that, that says an awful lot. And, and it, and this is, you know, I would say, you know, we see that even the, the films themselves reference this with one of the most famous moments in the 1970s, James Bond's. And that is at the end of the pre-credit sequence of the spy who loved me. When James Bond appears to be have been chased off a mountain by Soviet agents who are sent to kill him, right? He leaps off this mountain and he is free falling, and then he reaches and he pulls the ripcord. And not only does he have a parachute, because of course he would have a parachute, but that parachute is the Union Jack, right? And so you know there is no mystery, you know. And this, these are the sorts of things that then when Austin Powers wants to spoof it by having by having him riding his his Jaguar, which is painted the colors of the Union Jack, right? This is only possible because of the way that James Bond has made this connection in the public mind. Of course, the the the, the bit with the Queen is very interesting yes. in, in the 2012 Olympics. I was actually in Wellington in New Zealand for that event as I was trying to get as far away from London as possible <laughs> that year, uh, which I managed. Um, but it's also when you think about it, of course, Bond is this globally recognised character. Um, later on, the Queen has tea with Paddington Bear, who's also globally recognised. But then at the same time, when you stop and think about it, hang on a minute, this is someone who assassinates on behalf of the British state. This is this is quite peculiar. Um, I, I was just uh, went to see Charlie Hickson on Saturday, a, a, a discussion and a talk about Bond and then a screening of Casino Royale. And Charlie Hickson has just written the most recent continuation Bond novel for Ian Fleming Publications. And that's called On His Majesty's Secret Service. So it's the first novel now published with King Charles, I have to think, the third. Um, you know, and, and but this, you know, it's very peculiar, this, this identification of Bond with Britishness and then Englishness, because, of course, it's not quite that straightforward. Bond is Scottish-Swiss. Uh, his favourite drink is absolutely American, the martini, or what we think is his favourite drink. What he actually drinks is champagne, but we, we identify him with the martini, which is a quintessentially American drink. I mean, long arguments about where the martini was first developed, probably on the West Coast, probably San Francisco, probably at the end of the 19th century. Um, but this is quite a peculiar drink for, for someone British to you know, actually consume on a regular basis. And that American angle and that American dimension is actually central to the whole story of Bond. Because if Bond had never taken off in the US, either the books or the films, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation now. This would have been a very minor set of pulp fiction and maybe one or two films that never really went anywhere. And, and one of the core questions is, is how does Bond take off in the way it does to the excesses of Bond mania in the 1960s? You know, a time when, when Britain was still a cultural superpower, uh, if not a hard power superpower, um, you know, and, and the way in which the British sort of streamline behind Bond very successfully. And again, uh, in the early 2000s, in the early noughties, I mean, you know, British embassies around the world, when there's a Bond premiere, they have Aston Martins parked outside. They have Bond parties. Yeah? I know this from a colleague of mine who's still with the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office, which they enjoy very much, but it's now being promoted as part of sort of brand GB, which is interesting but peculiar because you're promoting someone who does really quite scurrilous things See, that we 
Yeah, but he's got, but he's just, he's just so smooth, Martin. And isn't that, I mean, and, and, and of course, this is something, right, as you can tell by the two of us, right, is that, uh, you know, we have, we have the, we have the, the smooth Englishman and the somewhat clumsy American following behind him trying to help things out. But that, you know, that the relationship between Bond and the Americans, what is fascinating, and I, I wrote, this is my chapter, talked about this a little bit, but it's, it shows up other places as well in the book. That while the Americans embrace James Bond, James Bond remain. There is no American James Bond because we American culture, in its own way, has not been able to produce someone with that combination. You know, Bond is a Bond is a scamp, right? And and you know, and he does he he plays practical jokes even on his on his bosses. But he is essentially he is a civil servant and he is a servant of the Queen. Well, and I think this is a really interesting point too. I think you. Um, You've, you've touched upon something I was really wanting to explore, which is the UK, the special relationship. Yeah. But also, I think there's an interesting dynamic with his relationship with establishment Britain. Yes. And what this means in terms of a class relationship, because I, I mean, I hate to get all academic nerd on this, but I think Bring that it. that's really a fundamental part of this. By the way, my graduation party for my PhD, I wrote on intelligence, was a Bond party. We had martinis. <laughs> so it's of penetrating. <laughs> but I would like to explore this establishment piece. And, and, and several of the essays bring this up throughout the book mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that he is a scamp he's a rogue he's assassinating but he comes back to the mothership so can you explore that a little bit more i mean this is what i think is it's a fascinating element in uh in in broader in british in british culture right is that you know the 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 you know, this goes back to Tom Brown's school days, right? Or I say it, it goes all the way through Boris Johnson, right? The kind of, uh, you know, that you uh, you show you you break the rules, but ultimately you are a rule follower. Um, it is, and and I think that's a class thing. But it's also what's interesting is that, as Martin points out, right? Bond is not English. And we do get the impression, and this, of course, they do this in the newer films, in the, in the Craig films, they make this more explicit, right? That he's not a member of the same upper class as the people who are running the Secret Service. But we, but we don't get the impression in any of these things that Bond is not Jason Bourne, who is who is actively trying to take down the corruption of the Secret Service. In fact, in Skyfall, it is Silva, the villain, who wants to take down the Secret Service. Right? Silva is basically Jason Bourne. Right? He is a former agent who feels as though his mind and life has been blighted by his experience with the with the Secret Service and wants to punish it. And who is going to save the civil the Secret Service? James Bond. So in that sense, right, you know, that, 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 that says something about the, the cultural things. Just last night, while I was preparing for this, of course, they showed one of, one of my favorite spy films on Turner Classic Movies. They showed The Epcrest File. And and that that is with Michael Caine as Harry Palmer, who was definitely even though the films were produced by Harry Saltzman, who, pro who produced the James Bond films, and they used John Barry to write the music, who wrote music for James Bond films. Those films go out of their way to make Harry Palmer seem like this working class hero, grumbling, complaining schemer. And in fact, he survives in the Upcrest file. His commander literally says to him at the end, I knew you would be insubordinate. So I knew I could count on you not to, not to fall for the brainwashing that the bad guys were doing. And even there though, even there in the Upcrest file, which Len Dayton writes to be an anti-Bond and the movies are definitely made to be anti-Bond. Harry Palmer is still working for the man. Right. This is why I say in, in, in American popular culture, right, we like private investigators. We have, private eyes are our James Bonds. And, and Raymond Chandler and Ian Fleming were actually friendly with each other, which I also think is a very interesting thing. So the, the, the father, one of the fathers of, of spy novels, one of the fathers of, of, of private eye novels. But 
but the 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 element in in these British stories that when 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 push comes to shove, Bond is on the side of the establishment is remarkably consistent. And I don't know, Martin, what do you what do you think about that? I mean, because he's not a public school boy by any stretch, but he is. Well, he's a failed failed Thank public okay. school yeah. boy. Yeah. He had to. He was at Eton, uh, as was Fleming. As was Fleming, um, and he had to leave because of a, an incident, a dalliance with it. Was it the daughter or a, a barmaid in the local? Both Bond and Fleming. Class is very important in Bond, but it's refracted in, in a variety of peculiar ways. I mean, Fleming himself, and and again, I come back to Shakespeare's biography that I'm currently reading. You know, he does a very good job of un- unpicking these these complexities of even Ian Fleming's class. Although his father uh, came from an exceedingly wealthy uh, banking background, his great-grandfather was, uh, on both sides, uh, uh, very lowly. I mean, he he comes from a class basis. And, of course, Sean Connery, you know, working class. They're they're always playing with this in different ways. And, of course, the meaning of class here in Britain and the meaning of class in the United States, and, of course, there are no class divisions in the United States. It doesn't exist in the same way. Skyfall, you know, is outside our realm of, of the Bondian Cold War in some respects, but it is interesting there's that landed aspect. And, of course, the aristocracy are those who own land in perpetuity. And, of course, tracing back your ownership of land, what, a thousand years is the rough benchmark in, in, in European culture. If you, can, if you can trace something back a thousand years, you're working with something. Um, but the class is very interesting because it plays with it. And, of course, when you get to the actors, you get these actors who are not necessarily from the upper class at all. Sean Connery is the perfect example. So here you have this peculiarity of this, this, this gentleman who's not a gentleman, who's actually very violent, being played by this working class Scotsman, right, um, is, is peculiar. But Fleming himself was playing with that. And, of course, although he comes from a very rarefied, um, you know, background in terms of British society, within which he moved in the Second World War and afterwards, of course. Yeah, uh, very much at the upper echelons, the fact that the prime minister goes to stay at his house in Jamaica after the failure of the Suez crisis. You know, this is a guy who's hobnobbing with, with all the great and powerful. And yet at the same time, class as represented in the in the bond books and by Fleming himself is is not as is far more ambiguous ambiguous is a good word here Fleming's far more ambiguous about this although bond is is certainly defending the realm um it's not at all clear that he's defending any of everything that exists in the realm in terms of society and class you know and and somewhere there's this great quote from Fleming that he, he, he talks, and again, you're never quite sure whether Fleming's joking or not. This is something I've, I've discovered trying to write about Bond. You, you're never quite sure whether he's, he's taking the mickey or not. And he says, oh, I imagine Bond being left wing. Mm-hmm. It's like, what? what? <laughs> really? How? <laughs> um, and, and, and the politics are there, but the politics are there not perhaps in the way that we think. I mean, certainly in, in the sort of criticism of the Bond novels in the 50s and the films in the 60s, they tend to be divided to the left of British politics is quite critical and to the right of British politics is, is quite sympathetic. That's crude and it breaks down quite quickly. But there is this class divide in terms of how you approach Bond. Yet at the same time, if you look slightly later on at the films, the appeal transcends class 
And that's very peculiar. And of course, also probably one of the secrets of his success or the success of the general product, that although it's rooted in class, it transcends class. Well, and, and there's... It, it- I was just thinking about this too, is that Bond is, with all of the various fantasy elements of James Bond, um, one of the big fantasy elements, certainly in the novels, and, and I would say it comes up in the films too, is the consumption element, right? That Bond is living large. He's living the life. And the novels themselves are full of references to products, to the brand of shirts he wears, to the, to the, to the brand of liquor he drinks. And it's funny that the the only novel I can think of that reminds me of this is famously in the novel American Psycho, um, the Brett Easton Ellis goes on and on to mention all of the products that our hero is using. And so that's one of the interesting things. When, when, when you figure the Casino Royale comes out in 1953, the British are still uh, dealing with rationing. Um, and you have this guy who is traveling to the Casino Royale, playing Baccarat, Wearing fancy clothes, drinking, drinking hot top shelf liquor, um, eating, uh, you know, loving his sauce bernays, right? He and, and he he somehow is able to. He lectures Vesper Lind on the proper way to make sauce bernays. He says that he'll if he finds a woman who can make good sauce bernays, that's the woman he will marry. Um, which of course, it, it, that that there's a this so that Bond's politics are the politics are of the politics of consumption, the politics of of living well. And so you're critical, but you stay within a system that allows you to continue to live well. And of course, this this opens the door because you know I, I know the conversation has been going all over the places, you know. And then there's the problem of Bond and women, right? Because you know women are objects in so much of the Bond canon, and they are also status markers. Right, the fact that James Bond is presented as being able to uh, to have anyone that he wants, um, that he's he, he is literally able to change the minds of of villainous women, um, uh, famously in Goldfinger. Right, I must have appealed to her maternal instincts. He says when it turned, we find out at the very end. Spoiler alert: that Pussy Galore has changed the canisters from from nerve gas to something innocuous to allow the uh, to to foil Goldfinger's plot. Um, we know we know from watching the film earlier that it had little to do with her maternal instincts, um, but but you know it, it's even and it's of course even more problematic in the novel, which we don't even have to talk about. But the idea that um, that Bond as Bond as an avatar of a particular kind of lifestyle, right, and that's why he's embraced so heavily by by Playboy magazine in the 1960s, to the point that there's even references to Bond being a uh, member of the Playboy Club. Um, well, yeah. and it seems that he is he is definitely contrasting with the expectations of masculinity at that time. Yeah. If you're looking at the 1960s, it's it's as you point out, it is um, the bondage of the breadwinner, which I think is a fantastic line with the double entendre yeah. in there, um, because we are seeing here's a counterexample in that post. World War II era. And I also find it very interesting that it was a crisis of masculinity at that time, because that is a trope we continue to hear yeah. uh, through generations. Yeah. And there he is as this other role of this example of rebellion, but within the bounds. It's fascinating. Yeah, definitely is. Yeah. I mean, I would certainly draw readers' attentions if they get hold of the book to have a look at Tamfer's chapter and also the chapter by Stephanie and Claire, um, that looking at the role of gender. And there's some also, you know, there's some excellent work out there. 
dare I say, some of the most interesting work being done in Bondology at the moment is in the question of gender roles and, and the relationship of Bond. Uh, one of our contri uh, contributors, Lisa, Lisa Funnel, uh, has written extensively about gender and Bond and, and you know, some great work out there about uh, Bond girls and the relationship, both in the books and in the films. Um, and also, you know, Licensed to Queer, is one of my favourite podcasts and, and, and blogs at the moment, how Bond represents and refracts, yet is also, you know, very large amongst the LGBTQ plus community. You know, this is not just a heterosexual male sort of interest in Bond. It's quite widespread. So although I might personally lack the qualifications to discuss the role of gender and Bond extensively, it is quite complex um, the bond of the books, which which I think is interesting. I, I wonder how many of the listeners have actually read the books recently. Um, they do vary. And, of course, the bond of the books is not the bond of the films. And the bond of the comic strips in the Daily Express are not the bond of the computer games. And the bond of the, you know, we can go on and on when we get into the Bondiverse. Which bond are we talking about? Um, because we tend, maybe we're a little guilty of this too in this volume, to just look at the novels and the official 25 films. But there's a vast universe out there of different bonds. So which bond are we talking about? But even in the books, his attitude towards women is not quite as straightforward as we might think. Um, in some ways, Fleming's writing of Bond and some of his female characters, they're certainly not well-rounded. I'm not, I'm not going to go off and say that, that there's well-rounded female characters in Fleming's novels. But The Spy Who Loved Me, which is one of my favourite Bond films with Roger Moore, which has no relationship to the novel. In fact, when they got the rights to the films, that was the one novel they couldn't film the plot of. Fleming said, you can't film this. But that's a novel written from a, a woman's perspective. Bond only turns up in the last quarter of the book. We can argue about how well it works, and, and but it's an interesting experiment. So that gender relationship and the crisis of masculinity, which does seem to be going on for quite a while. I'm sure they were talking about the crisis of masculinity, you know, around the dining table with Napoleon. It does seem to be in around. I mean, we seem to have survived so far. Um, you know, and I think we will, but it's more complex. It is. Well, and, and I like to point out that in the, at the end of the novel Moonraker, right after, after James Bond has, has had his affair with Gayla Brand, he is legitimately in love with her and they're supposed to meet in the park after the dust has settled. And when, she, when, when she shows up, she is reserved and he can't figure out why. And she says, James, it was, this was just a moment and it was just work. You see that man over there. And she points to a gentleman who's waiting at a distance. I'm going to marry him. And, and Fleming actually, I mean, nobody, you know, there's, this is actually the movie where it, the, the book that ends with James Bond sitting on a park bench, musing about the fact that his life, he will never really have affection. And it's actually kind of, you know, it's, it's Fleming's effort at a little bit of, a little bit of literary dash and a little bit of the existential angst of the man, as he puts it, the man with a mask, the man with no face. And you know, I can tell you, I, not a lot of people have read that part of <laughs> Well, on that note, <laughs> um, once again, the book is The Bondian Cold War, The Transnational Legacy of a Cultural Icon. 
edited by Martin D. Brown, Ron Granieri, and Muriel Blave. This has been a fantastic conversation. I would recommend the book greatly, especially if you're having a martini. Thank you to Ron Granieri and Martin Brown for joining us today. It was great speaking with both of you. Thanks so much, Jen. It was terrific. Thank you for having us. And thanks to all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and all of our programs and send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace on your podcatcher of choice. And after you've subscribed, please rate and review this podcast because that's how more people can hear about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. This conversation is over, but we look forward to welcoming you again. Until next time from the War Room, I'm Genevieve Lester. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.